Uh, If you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to Luke chapter 14. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. If you don't yet have a Bible um, or one that you enjoy to read, we encourage you to grab some in the back. We have them free of charge for you to either borrow or take with you. And uh, we're continuing on this journey as Jesus has been interacting with the group, uh, Jewish group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the really religious ones. They are the ones that um, are more blue-collar. They're not like the Sadducees who are white-collar, who um, are more interested in politics and culture and getting influence. The Pharisees are more interested in their separation and obedience. Um, These folks have memorized the Bible. These folks follow the rules. These people um, have their act together on the outside. We've seen Jesus, though, call them whitewashed tombs. Um, My family and I were just in Galveston. If you go down Broadway, they have some raised up tombs and graves so that when flooding happens, the bodies don't all wash up. And uh, I want you to imagine, so on the outside, if you pressure wash it, right, John Michelson? If you pressure wash it, it looks really nice on the outside, but there's still dead things on the inside. And so he called them whitewashed tombs. And he's also called them dirty dishes that you have washed the outside, but not washed the inside. Um, Or you have the kid who's eight years old who goes and takes a shower but doesn't use any soap. And so his hair's wet, but he still stinks, right? And so these group of people have all the appearances of godliness. They're the ones that have their quiet times and go to the services and give and serve and do all these different things. And, And they're constantly now looking to dethrone Jesus because he is calling up those who don't deserve to be called up. And he's eating with those who do not deserve to be eaten with. And so the main point I want us to focus on this morning out of Luke 14, 1 through 11, is that we are free to reject the way of the Pharisees and embrace the way of Jesus. We are free to it in Christ. We are free to reject the way of Pharisees and embrace the way of Jesus. Let me break it down to you this way. If you've heard me preach before, I'll talk about this a lot. I'll probably talk about it next week and whenever else I'm allowed to preach again. We were created for relationship. And even before that, we were created from relationship. Our triune God, one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, from the Trinity created human beings and all that we see and enjoy. Sin, though, broke that communion. It separated us. When we chose to go our own way, when we chose to trust our own instincts, desires, and beliefs over trusting what God has called us to, that separates us. And therefore, due to debt, transactions are necessary. We see God's mercy immediately after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. He killed some animals and covered their shame, their nakedness, in order for them to move forward. Throughout the Old Covenant, we see God providing ways and rituals for human beings to transact with God so that they can once again be pure to relate with God. The challenge is, though, most people focused on their ability to transact more than the benefit of that transaction. And so God did what we could not do to send the ultimate transaction, his son, Jesus Christ, to live, to die, to rise again, obeying the laws and the prophecies so that through Jesus we have ability now by God's power and through his invitation to relate without transactions with God and to relate freely with each other. It's easy to be down on the Pharisees for their transactional behavior, but we are prone to the same type of behavior. We're prone to transaction. 
And early on in my faith journey, I was really down on the Pharisees because I was so far from being one. Last year, I showed my testimony here, but in 1995, when I was 17 years old, I was in an alcohol-related crash and ended up killing a friend of mine who ran in front of my car. From that time, I began a journey of trying to figure out what was true about God and which God was true. And what did Jesus really mean? And who was he? And at the age of 17, Jesus saved me. And so early on, I read about the Pharisees. I'm like, those would not be the people I'm hanging out with. They wouldn't want to hang out with me. I don't have a good a religious resume. I, I don't know where things are. I knew where Psalms was in the Bible because it, it was in the middle. But I, I didn't know much about God. But the reality is, is, is the more I grew in faith and the more I grew in knowledge, the more I began to rely on my transactions rather than Jesus' transaction. And we see with the Pharisees as Jesus is confronting their very way of being and their posture, not only before God and before each other and before those who are far from God, he begins confronting them. But I don't want us to be like, man, those bad Pharisees. But a saying is we have to constantly make decisions to reject the way of the Pharisee so that we can freely enjoy Jesus. So one Sabbath, a day of rest, a day separated for man to be rested and reconnecting with God. One Sabbath when he went to dine, Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. So Dr. Luke focuses on the fact that it wasn't just inviting Jesus over because they wanted to try to make peace and they really valued his ministry. They were continuously now looking for ways to trap him and to get him caught in some sort of error. After all, he was increasingly being followed as a, a prophet sent from God with authority not only in his words, but in his actions. And so these people whose authority and positions were being, was being threatened were now trying to dethrone this guy and get him out of the way. But he takes it a step further. So they're watching them, but let's just be honest. Jesus is watching them too. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy, I think they call it now a form of edema, which is swelling, it's usually in the extremities, a gathering of water. It's not like after you've gone uh, to Los Cabos and you've had a lot of chips and salsa and, and you're regretting life because you're not even ready for the main course, but you eat it for some reason. And you get out and it's hot outside and you can't get your ring off because you, you've gotten a little swelling. Am I the only one? Okay, well, no, I'm not. Come on. I've seen y'all there. It's massive swelling in the extremities. But it's interesting to note that he wasn't sitting off in the corner, but was most likely invited by the Pharisees to join them at the meal and to capture Jesus. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Okay, you brought this guy here. You're trying to challenge my role and my authority as a prophet sent from God. They surely weren't buying that he was indeed God himself. Is it lawful? Interestingly enough, most of the times the Pharisees would have something to say, but they remain silent. In that culture, silence either speaks to ignorance, incompetence, or that you've been silenced because you're wrong. They remained silent. 
Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So Jesus asked, is it lawful? You don't have anything to say? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, no. Hey, you're better. Go. Go on. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And again, they could not reply. Because he understood that the Pharisees would rescue a child or an animal on the Sabbath. Now, the Essenes were a different sect of Judaism. These people were hardcore separatists. They wouldn't want to be around any demonic things. They would have their own private jet. I don't know about that, but because they didn't want to be around demons. They were separate. They would not. If your kid fell in a hole, hopefully he's still there on Sunday. But the Pharisees, they would. And Jesus knew this, yet they were trying to throw him off. Because after all, the Pharisees loved their self-righteousness more than their neighbors. The Pharisees loved their self-righteousness more than their neighbors. They were more concerned by at least appearing right than for following the great commandment that Jesus condensed down, love the Lord your God with all you are and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Loving our neighbor is an important thing. That's why the care team is one practical way that we can step up and love our neighbor. So if Megan reaches out to you and says, hey, can you provide a meal? Hopefully you don't say, well, who's it for? That depends. Oh, they needed meals last week, so I'm good on them. Now, hopefully we'll say, how can I help? See, the Pharisees loved looking good. They would... If they had Twitter, they would tweet about how good they were. They would selfie good, good deeds, taking a meal over to Mr. George. You know, I don't know. But, but they loved their self-righteousness at the expense of actually acknowledging the real living God. They were more focused on what they could do and accomplish than who it was that they were created to live life with. But we have to note that the Sabbath was intended to be life-giving. And so when Jesus healed this man, he was just fulfilling the very restoration that the day of rest was intended to give in bringing rest and restoration and trust in the Lord. Sabbath is a day of saying, I can go one day out of the week and not have to produce because, God, you are my sustainer. It's that one day of time where you can go and say, God, you've got this. I don't have to. A sabbatical is an extended season of rest for recharge and is often a difficult thing for us leaders to go through and it's a challenging time to recalibrate and rest, but it's also a gift because we can believe that the Lord of the Sabbath has it. So not only was Jesus reinforcing the fact that he was a man sent from God and was indeed God by having authority over the physical realm, he was in declaring by healing this man on the Sabbath that he was indeed the Lord of the Sabbath as well. See, this idea, though, that these Pharisees had was this idea of, um, as one book put it, living under God, a transactional thing. We would live under the authority of God, being moral as a means to control God and others. See, a lot of times in our faith, we are moral so that we can try to gain more favor. Or we're more moral so that we can try to avoid punishment. And so our moral obedience and the way that we reorient the outward expression of our life is more intended to manipulate God. That sounds funny even saying that. 
or to manipulate the appearance and approval of other people. And unfortunately, a lot of people, we live that way in the church. How's your walk with God been? Meaning that God loves you less if you haven't read your Bible lately. Right? That, that's a life under God posture. Or God's not going to bless your business if you're not more obedient to Him. Sometimes God blesses your business as a punishment. I've worked with business owners. But we have this superstition that we buy into that, that God's on, keeping score of like, you know what, Walt, you said shucks twice. You're going to have to get up and use the bathroom at four. I mean, that's how we live, and that's, that's pharisaical. It leads us to believe that God owes you for doing good. It leads you to believe that you're more desirable to God because of your good works. It leads you to believe that people who are far from God are beyond God's reach and saving. It leads you to believe that people who have made worse mistakes than you are less desirable and loved by God. And Jesus, throughout the course of his entire ministry, kept saying like, hey, I mean, we just saw in the last previous verses in 13 that he's longing for them to come and find rest and provision and protection and identity in him to the Pharisees and to the Jews. He was inviting, he longed as a mother hen wants to gather her chicks. Oh, how I've longed for you, but you would not believe. You would not trust, you would not hope. And so he's ramping it up to the next level. What this does in our faith journey is it boils down our view of God as a deity who must either be appeased to avoid punishment or we do it to receive blessings. There's an overweight man with a large white beard who rides a sleigh with reindeer who keeps track of whether you're naughty or nice. And if you're naughty, you get coals. And if you're nice, you get a bunch of stuff. I'm not here to debate that or talk about the theological implications of that, but I will say this. That's how we treat our Creator as well. And that's not biblical. We need to reject the idea that our self-righteousness earns us more rightness with God as if Jesus is a starting point or a trampoline so that we can then dunk when really is Jesus came down and lowered the goal to where we couldn't miss. And so we have to understand that we, we live transactionally with the Lord. I mean, do you find yourself getting mad with God because things don't go your way? Or they go your way for other people? That's pharisaical. When Jesus is calling up these people that don't belong, it's infuriating these people. It's not fair. Because they love their self-righteousness. In fact, several years ago, Buffalo Bill Steve Johnson, some of you might remember this, in 2010, playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in overtime, goes to catch a touchdown pass, misses it, he doesn't blame himself or the quarterback or the defenders. He tweets this. I praise you 24-7, and this how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. I'm guilty of that. Fortunately, I didn't tweet it. But this posture of 
this separation from God, that, that we're living under God and it's up to God to perform the way, or maybe we're living over God and we don't really need Him. We act like Christian deists, meaning that we believe there's a God, but He's separate and not involved, doesn't desire to be with us. Or that anything good, bad, or otherwise comes from God, so it leads us to superstition. Or we have this transactional mindset. And Jesus is putting that on its ear. He's trying to liberate the Pharisees from false belief. Pick up verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Okay, let me break this down. Most of his parables are like, so a farmer goes out to scatter some seeds. This is like, hey, when you're invited to a party, kind of like the one we're at right now, don't take the place of honor. Now, the place of honor in this time was at the head of the table would usually be uh, a seat or two or like a couch where the head people would sit and then the most important guest would sit closest to those who were hosting the party. And so those who were least important would understand their chomping order. It's kind of like when you go to a wedding and the ones that, the brides that are really onto details have your name tag placed somewhere. Now, I'm not blaming brides, but if you're seated next to the bathroom, They had a map compared to the ones that are seated right next to the buffet. They get galled first. I'm not saying you should read into it, but you might. It's something to think about. Giving this place of honor. He says they're presuming a place of honor. I've had some embarrassing honor-taking moments of my life. I had one here on Monday, Thursday this year. My wife's lowering her head because we nearly had a fight about it and she turned out being right. So if you were here and you notice, why is that guy cutting in front of all of us for the meal? Number one, I like to eat. But number two, I was mistaken. I thought there were two lines. I still think there, there should be, but we'll talk about that at a meeting. And so I saw one person kind of split the other side. I'm like, that logically makes sense and I'm an effective person, so I'm gonna do that. And so I walk up there and my wife's like, no. Because I'm, I'm a little more outgoing and bold and hungry. No! And she finally came with me and everything else, went over to the Hyde's house, and we're like, there's supposed to be two lines, right? And they're like, nope. Embarrassment, right? I, I've done that. I have another story I won't share here, but it happened at a funeral. Um, it's funny now. But have you ever met those people that kind of walk in and it's like, I want the best seat in the house? They'll move people down. Sometimes that happens at church where people find like the best seat far enough where you won't get sped on. And then they'll park all their stuff before Sunday school. Not that we do that here. I mean, some more affluent churches have like reserved seating for large donors. I mean, special people. He's saying, hey, don't, don't approach life that way. Number one, and this is very open and honest way, it makes it awkward. But he's not just saying how you seat, seat yourself at a party. 
He's saying the posture by which we approach this life. So he gives instruction, verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. It's going to be sinking in for these folks that those sinners, that they would judge Jesus for hanging out with, that he would invite them to his table, that he would go sit at the table with them just like he would go sit at the table with the Pharisees in just the same way. They may not like what he is saying, but I'm, I'm certain that they're starting to get it. I mean, after all, he should be impressed. There's some of the godliest people out there, yet he was not impressed and said, hey, the way you're approaching this may feel right and may seem right and compared to other people looks right, but this is not the way of the Lord. This is not the way of God's kingdom. That's why I love when I go to a party or go out to eat with people. Before I'd find the most advantageous seat for me, I'd be thinking through, Where's the waiter going to take the order first? What's the easiest way to get out to the bathroom? How many times will I have to move for other ladies to get out to go use the bathroom? Anybody else strategic thinking when you go sit down? But it is nicer when you say, hey, whether it is the seat where the tables unevenly connect, I'm not sure if that makes you godly or not, but certainly increases patience. But it's a posture in how we approach God and it's how we approach other people. And that's what matters in the way of the kingdom is how we engage with God and how we engage with other people. He says, then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This isn't a new saying. It's, it's, in, it's in the Old Testament. Jesus has insinuated this before. It's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not just showing everyone that you care so much about other people. But it's that miracle of self-forgetfulness. It's not saying lack of self-awareness. Some of y'all could use some community. But self-forgetfulness of not having to be the utmost, not needing to prove that you're the best. After all, we see that the Pharisees loved man's exaltation more than God's exaltation. They loved other people to raise them up, to view them highly, to give them glory, rather than they cared about what God was doing in them, for them, and most importantly, with them. Self-exaltation. We hear that all the time on, on popular television shows, even in some popular Christian books that want to focus on how much better you can be and how much better you are and have a better life now and all these types of things. God didn't promise you a blessed life with a bunch of stuff. He promised you suffering and that he would be with you. And that's hard, that's hard to think, especially when it comes to our kids and it comes to our friends and it comes to ourselves. Right, but self-exaltation is like, no, I deserve this honor. I deserve this position. I deserve this praise. I deserve you looking at me with glory directed towards me. But Jesus is saying, hey, everyone who exalts himself, they will be humbled. Humbled. 
self-exaltation is one thing, but others' exaltation, and that plays out in a very sensitive spot for me in people-pleasing. Appearing one way, behaving one way, so that I have the pleasure of other people rather than obeying and following the ways of our Master. I know I'm not alone with that. Seeking to please man rather than to please God. And as I grew in faith, I learned the ways to act and what to say and who to read and who to highlight and what not to say. I learned to behave better. And quite honestly, that was another way I could transact without having to relate again. I could transact by giving the appearance of godliness, but having depression or sorrow in my soul or grief or doubt or fear. But I could appear good and that would give, keep Christian people off my back. I learned how to behave like a Pharisee. And I know that's true for a lot of us. Because transactional religion feeds some of our sin needs when we forfeit some of the other sins that are bigger and worse and are more destructive and we replace it with more discreet, polite, and acceptable sin. Jesus didn't call you from bad things to less bad things. Jesus invites you from death to life. And maybe this Sabbath day, the Lord's inviting you to that life, to that freedom, to that resurrection power, to the ability to say yes to Jesus and no to things that are life-taking. Because after all, God will humble us or exalt us according to his good pleasure. He will humble us or exalt us according to his will and his pleasure. God's pleasure isn't found in us trying to be better behaved. God's pleasure isn't found just from the sins we don't do. God's pleasure isn't just found from us reading the right translation or reading the right authors or listening to the right podcast or going to the right church. God's pleasure is solely found because Christ is in you. Christ didn't start as a perfect sacrifice until you got your act together. He is. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He doesn't just love you on your sober days, but he also loves you on the days you fall off the wagon. Satan wants you to believe you have to run away when you fail, but Jesus is saying, come back, I paid for it. I'm preaching to myself, too. Jesus would go eat with sinners. He would take the light of the world. He would take the salt of the earth. He would take the way of the kingdom. He would take the victory of the cross and bring it into dark, broken, shattered places. His aim wasn't to make them less bad. His aim was to make them alive. God's pleasure in us solely is found because of Christ in us. And that's why we invite you, if, if you're sitting here and thinking, but I don't know Jesus, I don't know if I believe Jesus, I'm a good person, I believe in God, but I don't. Look, your belief in God absent of Jesus is a belief that you are hoping in yourself. For Jesus said, for I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father, to God, but through me. 
Jesus the Messiah came first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. Jesus came to be a fulfillment of the laws and prophecies of the Old Testament. In an uncanny way, he has matched them all. So we're not calling you to come here to Redeemer and act better and be nicer. We're saying come out of the darkness and into the light. Allow Jesus to bring you from death into life. To trade out your grave clothes for new redeemed clothes. Because in Christ, we can be freed from transactional living to a life of following Jesus. A life with Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5-11, through 11, there's a, often thought of as a song speaking to the way of Jesus. So rather than hoping in your righteousness, look, some of us this morning checked the box off that we showed up here. And if we wanted a star in that box, we wrote a check. And if we want a really double star, we made sure it was 10% at least of net. You can't buy your righteousness. We give because we've been given everything. We love because we've been so well loved. We speak the message of freedom and transformation and hope because we've been gifted that. Not to earn a thing, but to say thanks. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was God... Not near God, not created in God's image. God, he didn't hold on to it. But he emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. This is good news right here. This isn't a fill in the blank, put your name here, name it and claim it. No, it washes that away and says this. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will humble us and exalt His Son Jesus so that in Him we will find true joy and satisfaction and transformation. That we will find liberty and freedom from the rules that bind us to a life of joy and obedience. Through Christ we then become free to serve. We don't have to serve because we've been saved. We are invited to serve so that we can walk with Jesus because Jesus came in the form of a servant. We become free to obey, not because God says, do not what I say, but as I tell you to do, He says, no, do what I do and follow me. So obedience no longer becomes some way to keep an angry God mad, but a way for us to enjoy the benefit and relationship and communion with our Savior. And also we become free to die because we know that we in Christ will live. A lot of people live their whole life trying to avoid death to the extent that they never really live. I'm guilty of it. I know many of you are as well. But in Christ, He gave up His life in obedience. Why? Because He knew the impending glory that would be coming. That one day, whether you'll humble yourself today 
and acknowledge Christ at one day, every knee will bow. On earth, under the earth, above the earth, and acknowledge that which is true, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are free to reject the way of the Pharisees and embrace the way of Jesus. We're free to serve, free to obey, and free to die.